Welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dan Burhaj, and I'm a senior fellow here at AEI, and I'm joined by my friend. I'm Giselle Donnelly, and we're missing our third colleague, uh, Yulia Jojo, uh, who's been an integral part of our program, uh, but can't make it today, um, but we miss her very much. Delabor, uh, let's sort of dive right in. And I think it would be good to start broadly, and then we can talk about the Ukrainian counteroffensive and other ripped from today's headline topics as we go, uh, go along. And then, of course, we'll take uh, questions from you all. So be, put your thinking caps on. We've been doing the program now for, what, 16 months or thereabouts? Uh, started shortly before uh, Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine. But we've been talking about doing the program for probably nine months before that. I think all of us thought very much that over the course of the post-Cold War period, Europe had gradually faded from the American radar. Um, and of course, the lenses through which we looked at Europe for all those Cold War years was Western Europe. <clears throat> um, and the expansion of NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Empire was kind of a project that was not completed. So all of us wanted to do what we could to try to refocus American attention in particular, uh, but also to bring together the farthest reaches, if you will, of the transatlantic community. And all of us uh, were worried about Russia's behavior, certainly uh, through the course of Vladimir Putin's uh, term as Russia's leader, the pattern of constant but sort of salami slicing aggression, not only beginning in Georgia in 2008 and continuing in Ukraine uh, in 2014, but even internally. Uh, the wars in Chechnya uh, were the things that really made Putin's reputation as a national leader. Um, so again, we would just, I think, wanted more broadly, and it was uncertain whether uh, Russia would go through with uh, the invasion, and many of our colleagues and many of us were uncertain. It, it seemed like such a madhouse idea uh, from the start. We, so again, we wanted to, to not be quite entirely dependent on events in the war, but of course, over the course of the last 16 months, that has provided us with nearly daily headlines and guests and issues to talk about. Delabar, why don't you also try to explain uh, how we try to take a broader cultural and broader political approach as well as just talking about security issues? Yes, yeah, so, so in, in the intro and outro to every episode, we say that this is a podcast dedicated to the many challenges to Europe's peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And, and the thinking behind this was really uh, to to counter the um, emerging consensus that, that that really crosses partisan lines and dates back to, to the years of Barack Obama, who called himself the first Pacific president, and then through Trump to, to the current administration, this sort of lingering sense that, that, that maybe Europe doesn't really matter as much as it used to, that our primary purpose as Americans in the world is to, is to respond to the challenge posed by China which you know might not might, might not be right, but 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 in all of that, uh, there has been this sort of sense that 
European affairs can be left safely to Europeans to, to take care of. And, and I think that created blind spots, uh, including the one that has led to, to, to the current war that, that Russia is waging against Ukraine. It has led to obviously many other uh, frictions in the transatlantic partnership. And, and my contention is that it also limits America's ability to effectively compete with China because well, one of our kind of superpowers as a, as a country is the ability to, to build coalitions of countries, to set international standards, to, to bring others on board. It's not through coercion, it's not through blackmail, it's not through pure sort of realist leverage that, that we build these coalitions, but, but by countries coming to us and asking for our leadership because they know that a world which is in which America remains a preponderant power is infinitely preferable to one in which uh, you know, regional fiefdoms are run by, by the Russias and Irans and Chinas of the world. So, so, so really since, since Obama years, we've been hearing voices from Central and Eastern Europe urging Americans to sort of come back to the region, do more, uh, be more present, uh, lest space be created for, for others to step in. And we've seen that with, with, with China, including with China that has come back in, 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 in a way with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative through the 16 plus one uh, partnership. And, uh, and we also seen sort of, you know, indigenously domestically driven backsliding in some places where, where that kind of commitment to the transatlantic alliance and, 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 and the Western geopolitical structures that was once taken for granted has started fraying around the edges. And, and I think for all of that, it is important that, uh, that Americans be able to you know, pay attention to more than just to one region at, at, at a time. I mean, that's part of being a global, global superpower. And then on top of that, now we have a real shooting war in Europe, something that seemed unthinkable until relatively recently. And, and I think the idea that we can just safely turn our backs on Europe and that it have no repercussions for our ability to confront China down the line just strikes me as 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 as, as hopelessly hopelessly naive. So that's kind of the broad thinking. We wanted to you know bring in interesting voices from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, we you know the initial podcast that we recorded was with a range of actors, ranging from the world of politics through public intellectuals. Uh, we were hoping to bring in more artists, writers, just sort of interesting people from the, from the region. Uh, but we were sort of overtaken by events. And, 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 and so this has been a Ukraine-heavy podcast for the, for the past uh, 13, 14 months. Still, even in the context of um, Ukraine, I think we've tried, even though you know, we do sort of periodic reports from the battlefield and situational, military situation updates. Um, even as the war goes on, we've tried to reach out to other elements of Ukrainian society um, because, again, thinking what an American audience and our primary, we have a growing audience in Eastern Europe, but our primary audience um, is here in the States, <laughs> particularly here in, in Washington. Uh, but for example, you know, we um, did a did a program on the everybody's favorite Christmas carol, the Carol of the Bells, uh, and its Ukrainian origins, <coughs> and covered the tour of a Ukrainian children's choir here uh, around Christmas time 
that uh, was uh, very successful and, and very popular, but also to, to tell some sort of people stories. Um, sometimes we sort of yearn for having a video element to, uh, to our podcast in that when we're talking to somebody who's um, running their laptop off of battery power in a bomb shelter in Kiev in the middle of the night lit by a single candle, sometimes the picture is as evocative as their, as their story. So we've tried to, and as Zalibor said, and I think we've had more success talking to people who are sort of not the leading politicians. We do have them from time to time, but they tend to be very careful and they have staff people hovering in the background lest they say something interesting and uh, provocative uh, or even though we try to chivy them out of their comfort zones. We did have a foreign minister after his second glass of wine, and it was fun. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I think that's, you know, I think all of us get a little bit more entertaining under those circumstances, but uh, uh, since a lot of our podcasts are early in the morning, uh, our time, uh, it's possibly not as wise an idea as it might seem. Dalbor, let's, let's talk about some of the more... Uh, immediate events, uh, but before we get to the um, uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive and the state of the battlefield per se, uh, let's take at least one step back. Mm -hmm. You were recently at um, a thing called GlobeSec, which is the most important security conference for Eastern and Central Europe, sort of like a half step behind the long-running Munich Security Conference, uh, which is, has been the focus of transatlantic um, dialogue for decades and decades. But it's interesting to see the emphasis that's shifting within Europe, uh, I think away from uh, the Franco-German uh, orientation um, and kind of a, oddly away from an east-west orientation to a more north-south uh, orientation. You know, if you think of the map of Eastern Europe, it's uh, defined by the rivers that flow to the Black Sea. Uh, it, it's, I think, helpful to turn your usual lenses 90 degrees one way uh, or the other to, to get a different perspective on things. And, of course, we do have the NATO summit coming up in Vilnius, uh, which emphasizes the uh, uh, importance of both the Baltic states and the new Nordic uh, members of NATO. But why don't you give us a sense of what... Uh, you heard in Prague uh, at Globesec, or uh, Bratislava. I'm, I'm sorry, I just insulted the Slovak. <laughs> Cl close enough. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes, your hometown Prague. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, there's the sort of curse of being from a small country in Central Europe and living yeah. in America. Where Are we supposed <laughs> to call it Czechia or the Czech Republic? or both? I'll, I'll never say Czechia in okay, my Okay, good. Life. You're going to have to explain that to me, to me someday. It does seem a little, you know, like a, a, a phony made a risk game kind of a name. I mean, I, I can do Bohemia. I mean, that's... Okay, that, I like that one very much. That, that, that's nice, but, but Czechia is... I mean, <laughs> like okay. a, a small C conservative. I just can't do <laughs> neologisms uh, as, as a general proposition. Man. But tradition... Of, of so, so before I get to Globsek and, and Bratislava, I just wanted to uh, 
mention one of my earlier trips to, to, to Europe in May, uh, which was to Warsaw, to a conference dedicated to something called the Three Seas Initiative, okay. uh, which is an effort uh, initially by the Polish government, but, but joined by countries of the region, to ba basically bolster north-south connectivity in Central and Eastern Europe. And to me, it's an interesting example of uh, what... Of, of the sort of agency that these countries have and, 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 and pressure that they can put on their Western partners, including on the United States, in order to pursue their own interests. And it's striking because for much of sort of recent history that we remember, these countries were, were sort of pawns in some greater geopolitical game played by, by, by greater powers. And, and this is, might be the first time instead of living memory, that they can actually make their own choices, that they can actually you know, have sources of leverage over, over their Western partners, where they can uh, make their own choices. And, 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 and so it's a, you know, it's, it's a good time to be central, from, from Central Eastern Europe, you know, compared to the sort of horrors compared that were visited. partitioned, yes. Uh, horrors <laughs> that were visited on that part of the world over the 20th century or, 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 or even, even before. And, and so the Three Seas Initiative basically is trying to uh, you know, bring a sort of Central and Eastern European perspective on, 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 on a problem that has existed for a long time, namely that you have you know, connections from the West to the East, but nobody really thought of, of these countries as being a sort of block with, with shared interests. So, so these countries have now invested heavily into energy interconnectors, which basically decrease the leverage that Russia has in selling natural gas to individual countries. It used to be the case 15 years ago that Gazprom would reach different agreements with different sort of pricing structures with different countries, depending on how you know, amicable the, the relations with, with the Kremlin were. So that's no longer possible. These countries have also pushed for the EU to have a sort of more competitive policy when it comes to, to energy markets. So, so, so there is all this effort uh, and obviously there is a sort of military dimension as well. We need to be able to move units and, 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 and military equipment from the north to the south if there were a, an actual shooting war with, 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 with Russia. And, uh, and I think it's suddenly dawning on, on Western policymakers as well, and that's where I come to, to the Globse conference in, in Bratislava, where I uh, went to this panel where uh, President Macron came and, and essentially made... A, an effort to, uh, to sort of reconnect with, with, with Central and Eastern Europeans in, in a way that was quite quite striking coming from a French president. So, so you know, you're, you're obviously all too young to remember this, but, but in, 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 in the mid-noughties when, when the Central and Eastern European countries joined the U.S. effort uh, in Iraq, uh, President Jacques Chirac famously said that uh, these countries missed their opportunity to shut up. And, and, and so, so, in fact, last week, President Macron came with, with basically an apology for that. He sort of I would call implicitly, implicitly referenced that. He, you know, he said we should have listened more. You were right about many things, including Russia. And he also sort of suggested that going forward, the, the West needs to sort of step up to take the concerns of this part of the world uh, seriously. I mean, the question is, you know, what that means in, in sort of specific terms. We'll have the NATO summit coming up. Uh, next next month, I've actually this week I wrote two pieces that I published two pieces that sort of look at what is the real challenge in my view of of lying ahead for the for the for the for the alliance with regard to Ukraine, which is which is that from uh, 
you know, from a Ukrainian perspective, it is very unlikely that, that Russia can win in Ukraine, but, but it is very possible that Russia will pose a, a continuous threat to the future of Ukraine. And that's why, you know, this war risks being a long one. I mean, Ukrainians, in order to sort of secure their territory, to remain safe, to prevent the Russian reinvasion in the future, I mean, they have very strong incentive to retake the entirety of their territory, particularly Crimea, which can serve easily as a launch pad for future attacks on Ukraine, for bombing campaigns and, and, and rocket launches, and, and also makes it very difficult to secure the sea lanes in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Black Sea for, for Ukrainian exports. So, so, you know, one way to sort of change the Ukrainian calculus is to say, you know, once the war is over, you can be NATO members, right? Like it's a sort of degree of substitutability between sort of Ukrainian hard power and the reconquering of their territory and security guarantees provided by NATO. I mean, when you look at countries like Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia, these countries are literally indefensible by, by, by sort of conventional means. Yet, Lithuanians, Estonians, Latvians sleep well at night with the knowledge that they are protected by Article 5 guarantees and, and, and Putin would not you know, risk starting a, a war with, 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 with the alliance. Obviously, Ukrainians have agency, like they'll be the ones making decisions about how long this war goes on and, and, and how much uh, they want to sort of invest in, 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 in those efforts. But, but I'm sort of arguing that we could change their perspective you know, not inconsiderably by, by giving them a credible path towards, towards alliance, alliance membership. And, and so people who say that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this because it's escalatory and also we shouldn't be giving weapons to, to, to Ukraine to be able to sort of wage this war and defend themselves and reconquer the territory. Like they're effectively saying that, you know, it's okay if this goes on forever conceivably and, 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 and that we really have no stakes in the in the outcome, and I, I just don't buy that. I mean, you know, right now it doesn't seem to be likely that that, the Russia, that Ukraine would be overrun by Russian forces, but it, what, what seems to be very plausible to me is that we'll end up with a Ukraine that's sort of 10 years down the line, you know, hyper-militarized, able to defend itself, but might not be, you know, particularly keen on, you know, friendly relations with the West. We'll be asking ourselves the question of who lost Ukraine, and, you know, it's a it's an important country, 43 million people, massive agricultural sector. It's right at Europe's doorstep. And, and I think it is in our own interest to, to have it as a sort of friendly ally rather than, than as a sort of embittered nation, maybe, maybe in, in political turmoil. Let, let me just conclude and then we'll open it up for uh, questions. Um, Dalibor has hit on a one of the things that's important to us in the podcast is not simply to say, how did we get where we are? And in fact, <clears throat> where are we? But where might we go? And where should we go? Uh, because uh, although it seemed that the European project was completed by the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, that's clearly not, not the case. Russia, you know, wh whatever the outcome of the war, will remain a menace that will require deterring uh, and the new Eastern Front of the free world, if I can talk like somebody of my own age, um, will need protection and it will need protection from the United States. 
the fact that there is peace in Europe is uh, the result of long-term exercise of American power and American military might. And it's also very clear that but for those factors, uh, the U freedom of Ukraine would be very much in doubt at this point and might have disappeared uh, a year ago. To try to pivot to current events, but sort of keep this forward-looking uh, perspective. So the, the Vilnius summit is in the middle of July, the 11th and 12th, if I recall off the top of my head. And it looks as though at least so-called shaping operations are underway in the long-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. Ukrainians are very good at operational security. Um, if you recall the, um, the big counteroffensive of last year, uh, the Ukrainians said, we're going to go for Kherson, uh, and then they did, uh, you know, commit substantial forces to trying to take that city in the south uh, of Ukraine. But the big punch came in the north uh, through Kharkiv uh, and into uh, the Donbass, uh, which is a pretty sophisticated uh, deception operation, and it shows that the Ukrainians are perfectly capable of orchestrating large-scale campaigns that are related to one another and to sustaining them. So I don't have a really uh, a crystal ball or uh, actual intelligence about where the main effort um, uh, will come uh, in short, but considering that this summit will be an important moment for the alliance for the United States, Western Europe more broadly, to start wrestling more concretely with the long-term relationship with, not only with Ukraine, but with Southeast Europe and Central Europe. And um, now that the, the Nordic countries and the Baltic countries and, and Poland has become such a powerful, is becoming such a powerful military uh, uh, force, um, you can see where the trends could lead uh, with uh, adept statesmanship and maybe if we set aside some of our own self-deterrence and uh, fears of uh, Russian escalation, Vladimir Putin has cried nuclear wolf uh, for uh, about 16 months now. Um, and uh, as those things go, uh, it loses his credibility every time he, uh, uh, he makes it. So I think we're, certainly entering a new phase of this conflict, whether it will be the decisive phase in the sense of uh, creating the conditions for a complete Russian retreat uh, is hard to say, um, but um, it will be a momentous couple of months and there's pretty strong incentive for the Ukrainians to arrive in Vilnius as victors rather than victims. Um, and to show the United States and the rest of the West what the advantages of partnership with Ukraine will be. So why don't we pause there, unless there's something that I left on the table that... Well, so, 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 so <laughs> former, former President Trump used to say that he was a very militaristic person, so, so I'm very much not a militaristic <laughs> person and know nothing about questions of military strategy or, or, or tactics. But yes, one Mr. thing that President. I do know is that... Uh, I mean, these, these Ukrainian operations are always great for internet memes. 
<laughs> so, so you know, since the beginning of the war, we've I, seen. I, I, I'm waiting you know, for the tractors to come splendid back. Splendid sort of genre emerge around NAFO and, right. and, and 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 those kinds of things. But but more recently, Russians claimed through a video that they destroyed a Ukrainian leopard tank. And when you sort of zoom in the video, it yeah. looks like an actual combined harvester just sort of sitting in the field. So so if you sort of Google that, that will you know you'll you'll get a kick out of that. So so I'll, I'll but but I'll definitely agree but on a more serious note with the with the sort of political point that Giselle is making that the Ukrainians obviously want to come to Vilnius with something to show for for all the Western support and, and all the assistance. So so I think you know it's worth paying attention now because things will happen on the battlefield that might change change the sort of balance between the two two two, two militaries uh hopefully in ukraine's advantage okay let's open it up good morning uh, thank you very much for the talk my name is juan turiel i'm from spain i study in the university of navarra so i was wondering um whether you think more generally than the relationship between the us and europe should be conceived more like as an, an alliance between equal like uh, powers or more as the U.S. taking like the leadership of the West against other Russia, China, other powers, and if so, whether you think this could be accomplished without undermining European sovereignty? Thank you very much. Well, um, it is an alliance, but I think principally the glue that holds the alliance together is a commitment to common principles, political principles. I mean, the countries of Europe, my gosh, are as diverse as as they are. <laughs> They've also you know, been at each other's throats for oh, about 500 years, or if, if not longer. And it is true that the, the, it is, is a somewhat uneven relationship, quite naturally. Um, and, and I hope that that remains. I think that's a good thing. Um, and I really hope that Western Europe, which has been, was comfortable with this, sort of uneven partnership through the years of the Cold War when it when they were the frontline states will now recognize that the structure of the alliance is what's made it successful there you know sovereignty is a very slippery term uh, you can be sovereign and unfree uh, some European states sometimes act as though they'd prefer to be sovereign uh, than to be free or the member of a liberal alliance or uh, participating in a, a, a common economic purpose. So um, I don't know really, I mean, it's kind of up for the European nations themselves to decide they do have that ultimate sovereignty, but surrendering a slice of their sovereignty for a common purpose and a more effective uh, security arrangements is something that has worked well for Europe since 1945. If, if I may just sort of add one or two points to this, uh, I think your, you know, your question is an important one and uh, has, I mean, at least two dimensions. One is this question of whether Europeans should be doing more to take care of their security and, and their own interests. And there, I mean, the answer coming from both sides of the Atlantic seems to be unambiguously yes. Um, and, you know, it, it's coming from Republican candidates here who want Europe to, to step up. It's coming, it's been coming from every U.S. administration, and now it's coming from 
I mean, Europeans, Europeans themselves. Uh, but in these discussions about European sovereignty or strategic autonomy, there is also this undertone that uh, Europeans should be doing more independently of, of the transatlantic partnership, but independently of the United States, which, I mean, uh, again, that's ultimately for Europeans to decide. But I'll just say that when last week President Macron was, was in Bratislava, he, you know, he made the case for exactly that by saying that we can't really rely as Europeans on decisions made by American voters. You know, who knows what will happen in the next presidential election? Maybe the U.S. will indeed turn towards the Indo-Pacific, abandon Europe altogether. And, you know, that's something worth reflecting. I mean, I'm sort of saying that as a sort of, you know, Slovak-American, somebody who, who, who uh, I mean, has, you know, very much sort of share, share, share sort of your, your sensibilities on this. Uh, but but if, if you are an Eastern European, you know, like it's, it's as much of a concern to think about, you know, what happens in the next French presidential election. And I'm not quite sure whether, you know, as a sort of Slovak or Pole, one should be more comfortable, uh, you know, pooling, pooling one's sort of resources and one's security with, with you know, a country like France or Spain or Italy indeed. Uh, rather than with the United States, which indeed has demonstrated sort of willingness to help and, and, and maintains the presence and and has a sort of you know, significant sort of hard power to 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 to, to throw around. So, so ultimately, I don't think that we will arrive at a situation in which Europe and the United States will sort of look at each other as equal partners, simply because I mean you know Europe is not a federal state and you know whether you think that it is a good idea or not for the EU to sort of go down the path of further federalization I don't think it's likely to result in a situation in which it would be a sort of federal state with you know a federal government and and and, and sort of hard power to 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 deploy the way US hard power is deployed around the world hi my name is Jaha uh, I'm from Ohio but I study in Bulgaria in southwestern Bulgaria um, and so I want to ask a question that's kind of related to the previous one, but within internally Europe. Um, and that especially concerns some of these border regions, like, for example, Bulgaria. Uh, they're often talked about as policy receivers rather than policy makers. Um, and just as how you previously described the America and European relationship as being incredibly uneven, potentially for a good thing, internally within Europe, too, uh, it does often feel that way, especially in some of these Eastern countries. Uh, as you mentioned before, French President Jacques Chirac you know, said, shut up at one of those <laughs> conferences. Um, and in, for example, even recently, right, they were, Bulgaria and Romania were rejected by, I think it was the Netherlands from Schengen because um, of you know, security threats, so to speak. But that sort of isolation um, is often felt horribly. So my question is, do you think that within the context of America Europe, cooperation, there also needs to be internal European sort of reform to prevent uh, some of these border states from taking the path of Poland or Hungary, uh, which may backfire in the end. Thank you. Look, I would say there's, yes, of course, but there's also an important role for bilateral and, you know, U.S. multilateral relations with regions of Europe uh, as well as at the sort of continent level uh, as well. You know, we have had a much more difficult time projecting power to the Middle East in the post 9-11 wars, but for Romania and Bulgaria, just providing access. And to the degree that the Black Sea um, 
on things like the Danube Basin, et cetera, uh, will become, I think, more central to European security concerns and, as Dalibor said, uh, uh, economic interests. I mean, these regions could be developed um, in ways that would be, you know, accrue both wealth and power to across the alliance. So certainly, I think it's incumbent on the United States with its particular ability to see Europe as a whole and to act across the continent, whereas, you know, uh, such as, I mean, Spain, for example, has Mediterranean security interests that are higher on its priority list than, you know, defending uh, the Donbass, for example, which is, this is quite understandable. But I think the United States needs to start thinking in new ways and to look for new and possibly more agile, both bilateral relationships, but, but sort of regional groupings to uh, help enable this sort of rather amorphous concept of a new Europe or the completion of the Europe-Poland free uh, project outlined by President Bush uh, quite some time ago. Dalibor, what do you think? So, so I, I think from, from, you know, from, from the U.S. perspective, there is certainly interest in sort of elevating voices of countries that we know are right <laughs> about certain issues. And, and most importantly, that really is with the context of Eastern Europe countries that have recognized the Russian threat earlier than, 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 than some others. And we should therefore be trying to sort of steer them to, to, to be constructive actors and to have their voices heard on the, on the, on the, on the European and, and global stage. Poland has done some of that. Uh, it hasn't done quite enough, in my opinion. I mean, you know, the way Polish politics or Central European politics more broadly works is that it's like in the US very polarized and a lot of the sort of energy and effort is is sort of eaten up by culture wars and by things that are you know largely unproductive while we don't really know what is a sort of central european perspective on you know many many sort of issues that are relevant to the future of these countries when it comes to i mean the single market digital services etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean that you know there are policies that these countries have been sort of happy to outsource to to their western partners within the within the eu without really going through the effort of like thinking through what their interests and positions are I think they should they should go they should move beyond that because they really are in this position where they do have agency where they can shape these sort of common 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 European choices. They just in many areas have chosen not to do so, and and I mean it isn't very much my hope that 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 does change over time. And I think it's something that, that the United States um, ought to be ought to be encouraging that you know for example the rules of the single digital market be not written in Paris necessarily, but rather in countries that have churned far more innovation in sort of relative and perhaps even in absolute terms, uh, such as, you know, the Balts or, 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 or the Nordic countries. Uh, just to pile on, uh, uh, Ted, I mean, the, the countries that are backsliding democratically speaking, one strong incentive for reversing that trend uh, is is to make sure that they are safe and secure and allied with, uh, you know, a liberal alliance. To revive the project of civic liberalism, um, you know, requires uh, safety and 
not leaving the sort of uh, you know propaganda space to uh, Russian trolls and other malign actors, um, and if we want to sort of tamp down the uh, sort of uh, reactionary impulses of n newly free but not yet fully liberal uh, nations. Um, I think that's an important area for American engagement. Again, one of the tragedies of the last 20 years is that we assumed that this would happen sort of as a matter of, you know, the arc of history bending in a, uh, you know, in a positive direction. Um, and so we stepped back and just sort of assumed that nature would take a positive course and that has not always been the case. And the, the example of Ukraine is just going to be immensely powerful in this uh, regard. Um, I hope it actually, you know, re-inspires us uh, uh, to remember how powerful these uh, impulses to be out from under the yoke of uh, a nationalist uh, myth. Uh, so I, I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity here that could really be in reinforced beginning with victory by the Ukrainians. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Yakov Volner from Yeshiva University. Um, just wanted to ask, there's like this growing wing in the Republican Party that does not favor continuing uh, funding Ukraine. And if we're really in this for the long haul, and if, you know, for future military strategic advantage, like Ukraine would want to go and recapture Crimea, how do we sort of continue this support? Well, um, you know, presidential leadership would be good. President Biden, clearly the White House staff is husbanding his efforts. Uh, you know, and he's got an election to fight and all the rest of that stuff. There are some inherent challenges here, and maybe, you know, some of the other candidates will uh, help push this. I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, about the prospects. Speaker McCarthy, uh, you know, is in the penalty box with the uh, crazy caucus uh, uh, for, the, for the budget deal. And he said the other day, well, I don't know about that Ukraine supplemental thing, but you know, his ability to do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities and looking as absolutely spineless as possible uh, should not be gainsaid. And again, you remember how the numbers changed when the Ukrainians demonstrated success on the battlefield last year. Uh, I'm assuming that the, the, I know the Ukrainians are, you know, vitally aware of this, a, and the real test will come in the measure of this counteroffensive. And if they come out of uh, the NATO summit with, um, you know, even some sort of generally expressed but powerfully stated promises of NATO membership, that there's plenty of political space to to. <laughs> do another Ukraine, arm Ukraine supplemental. Uh, at the end of the day, the budget deal passed with a vote of 314 in favor. When I worked on the Hill, that was the sweet spot for a House majority. If you got anything more than 350, it was because the bill wasn't very important. And if you, you know, had to uh, rely purely on you know, your partisan majority, 
then you're probably doing something mendacious and stupid. So that suggests to me that, that at the end of the day, there is uh, a bipartisan normal caucus uh, that doesn't get the headlines nearly as much as the, uh, uh, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. But when the time is right, and it's going to be pretty soon because the Ukraine fund is kind of running on fumes at this point, uh, that that we'll get an agreement and that there'll be a pretty strong majority for it in the Senate. So, uh, you know, I might be whistling past the graveyard, but uh, but at least I think there's a logic in that analysis. So the, the way I would frame it is that uh, I, I would say that I'm not convinced that the biggest problem is what Giselle called the, the crazy caucus or the sort of crazy wing of the Republican Party because, you know, that, that wing is not running the government right now. I mean, the president asked for money, got it authorized at every juncture with a bipartisan majority. If he asked for more, he would get it authorized again, presumably. To me, the, the, the biggest problem is actually people within the administration who are trying to be too clever by half, trying to calibrate uh, assistance in a sort of you know, super intelligent way as to allow Ukrainians to defend themselves without angering Putin too much. Uh, that's why you know, after money gets authorized, the administration sort of you know, comes up with sort of you know, with specific dosage, right? Like you sort of inject a little bit of equipment here, a little bit like you know, two months later, and you sort of do it in these in these weird incremental steps while uh, you know, all these sort of very clever people in Washington are debating about whether, you know, this batch of armor would not make Putin more likely to escalate or use nuclear weapons or, 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 or whatnot and, and, and we sort of come up with these artificial, completely arbitrary red lines that exist only in our heads that we sort of debate and then we cross and then nothing happens. And that, that's been sort of happening, that's been a pattern like throughout this war. Like, you know, we went from javelins and, and laws to, to high Mars to tanks, now we are doing the same thing with F-16s. And uh, you know, like if, 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 if we sort of, you know, 16 months ago, if somebody was able to sort of say that this is how far we were willing to go, and, and just say it actually, maybe, <laughs> maybe there would have been no invasion because it would have been clear that, that this was bound to be such a, such a, such, such a disaster for, 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 for Putin. So, so I would almost challenge this sort of assumption that this has to be a sort of long haul process. I mean, you know, it is a function of like how much stuff we give to the Ukrainians. And the president says we are with the Ukrainians for as long as it takes. Like that's that's really not good enough because like we can be sort of dosing this assistance in like small sort of increments like forever and without sort of this leading to a, to a good outcome. Whereas if we just were to be more generous, like you know, maybe they could retake the South this summer. And then you know this question of Crimea would sort of come up in in later negotiations. I, I I do think that really sort of like the South is 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 the most important sort of vector for for the for the Ukrainians to to to, to go to, and the rest would be kind of a mopping up operation later on that could be achieved perhaps through military means, perhaps at, at the at the at the at the, at the negotiating table. But we really have hindered the Ukrainian success by, 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 by this sort of self-deterrence that, 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 that you know, this administration exercises. It's not the fault of 
congressional Republicans, whatever one may think of them. I, I don't want to uh, channel my inner Donald Rumsfeld because there is no inner Donald Rumsfeld. But you go to war with the president you have, not the one you might like to have. So I, I've got the soft bigotry of low expectations. That's the, I've um, got nothing but Bush quotes for you. So I have to say that I'll give the president 1.75 cheers for his performance. He, he isn't moving as fast as I wish he had done, but he's you know, doing better than I thought or expected. Hi, my name is Simi Kalatka. I just graduated from the University of Georgia, the state, not the country. Um, I had a question. <laughs> a lot of Go people dogs. Have <laughs> I've had a lot of people making comments, um, or a lot, their comments have been made about certain countries in Eastern Europe feeling ignored by the West, specifically the United States and other Western countries in Europe, when they talked about threats from Russia. I was wondering if you could share on the international level what policies are being discussed to help countries in the global south counter similar aggregation and threats from um, adversaries such as Russia and China? Uh, that's an excellent question. The short answer is not enough is being done. Um, you know, it's very interesting that uh, the Ukrainians have been, have understood that they have a problem there and have started to make efforts to uh, at least make connections with uh, African nations and uh, elsewhere. Um, the first set of policies would I think simply do to re-engage diplomatically and you know sort of on the civic society level that even if it's funded to a certain degree uh, by the government and we should do this for reasons that are that are global I mean the Chinese want to plunder the continent of Africa for lithium and other rare earth minerals and so on and so forth. And they're going to incentivize all the worst um, instincts of the local autocrats. Uh, so we're not nearly, and this should be beyond, you know, can we send in Delta Force or the SEALs or Special Forces to uh, um, bomb people in white pickup trucks uh, in the desert and so on and so forth. So, yeah, your, your point is taken. You know, I, we are coming back from at least three presidents who have sought to disengage from the world. Uh, President Obama, President Trump, and, you know, President Biden. And, uh, you know, we've still continued to step back uh, from the Middle East, despite the, you know, warning signs that we get from the Gulf and elsewhere. So we are not acting like a global power, um, and that's going to be a problem. Uh, like I say, it opens the door for malign actors, and it uh, is going to reinforce the power of local autocrats and nationalists and you know people who will try to divide their own societies in order to maintain their their rule. Um, that that is certainly a moral tragedy, but it's also a geostrategic mistake of uh, pretty substantial. You know, it's not like this is going to be hugely expensive. Uh, and it sure beats the alternative of having to intervene militarily either to rescue uh, American citizens, uh, which, you know, uh, 
as our military shrinks, is becoming more and more difficult to do. The Marines told the White House, I'm sorry, we, there's nothing we could really do about Sudan if you asked us to, so don't ask. Um, e even though there were tens of thousands of uh, American citizens who were potentially at risk. So I think the first thing to do is just to start paying attention and being willing to devote some resources to very traditional diplomatic engagement, um, militarily re-engaging. One of the best ways to uh, get access is through the general staffs or the military professionals, such as they may be, you know, even if they're <laughs> complicit in uh, um, inhumane acts, you know, if you're not making some effort to be in the room and to try to get your interlocutors to be less bad than maybe their political leadership is telling them to, uh, then you're kind of behind the eight ball, and we are definitely behind the eight ball. Sorry for the sermonette. No, I think this is perhaps the most important question that like, our generation and your generation can be can be asking ourselves. Uh, when I was training to become an economist in 2006, 2008, uh, questions of international development were, were left, right, front, center. Like it, it was on everybody's minds. Like you've seen this massive sort of economic growth in in, in Africa. You had you know the Green Eagles Summit in Scotland, where global sort of G7 leaders made commitments to to certain levels of of of, of sort of development assistance as part of public budgets. Uh, you had success stories, you know, Central Eastern Europe that 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 they grew at sort of dramatic rates of economic growth. Uh, places like you know Seychelles and and, and some African countries really sort of and the rise of obviously China and, and, and sort of Asian economies. And I think what happened with 2008 financial crisis and, and the subsequent decade was that much of the West, the sort of policy-making world in the West has sort of turned inward, that, 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 that people have simply lost interest in, in other parts of the world. And meanwhile, you know, China has made headway in Latin America, in China, uh, in, 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 in Africa. Uh, you have countries, you know, like India, Indonesia that are, you know, perhaps not unjustifiably asking themselves, okay, so why should we be joining the sanctions regime against Russia? Like, what is it, that, what's in it for us? Uh, and I'm not sure we can really blame them. I mean, it would take really sort of years of concerted effort and resources to sort of undo that that sort of parochial turn that our politics has turned, right? Like, so all we've been talking about for the past decade is sort of the crisis of democracy at home. The, and before that, we were sort of talking about you know, the free market capitalism failing us in the 2008 financial crisis, and then you know refugees came to Europe, people freaked out. These were these were all sort of you know problems sort of centered on us, and and I think they totally displaced any sense of sort of curiosity. I mean, you know, the aid budgets were the first victims of of like every every austerity program in every European country. With the maybe the exception of, of some of the Nordic countries, but uh, and you know, like try making the argument for for you know greater development budget, you know, in, in Republican circles these days. I mean, it's you know, it's not going to go anywhere, but yet it's something that that actually needs to be done if we are going to, you know, reassert ourselves and 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 have conversations with African leaders and. And and, and 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 others. I mean, you know, the way we've sort of neglected Latin America, I think, is is really shameful. And 
and, 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 and embarrassing. And mm, yeah, I think we need a sort of new serious internationalism as, 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 as a response to that. We haven't had it for a while. So it's over to you young people to fix what we've broken. <laughs> My name is uh, Marwan. I'm originally from Morocco, and I go to school in McAllister College, Minnesota. My question is, do you think the end goal of the West in the Ukrainian crisis is to reach peace in Ukraine or to destroy the Putin's regime in Ukraine? And if you think it's peace that they want, uh, don't you think it's bad keep, to keep sending them a lot of weapons? I mean, you, you mentioned making Ukraine a hyper-militarized country. Do you think that, yeah, sending them weapons will, will like, be able to, to reach peace or, uh, or not? And uh, you, you also got a lot of other countries like, like China coming up with a document called Principles of Peace in Ukraine, a document that has been ignored by European and American policymakers. So... What do you think about so that? So if, 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 if I may, um, yeah, you I, 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 I would be almost tempted to say that you can't have peace in Ukraine without the destruction of the Putin regime, or at a minimum without Putin's regime significantly revising its ambitions. I mean, you know, the reason there is war in Ukraine is, is that Putin's regime got high on its own propaganda about the supposed historic unity of the Ukrainian and Russian nations and ignored the fact that Ukraine was a sovereign country that was you know, meant to make its own geopolitical choices. And, and so until that mindset changes and until Russia abandons its war aims, uh, Ukraine will face a Russian threat. And there are ways it can deal with the Russian threat. Uh, the most straightforward, given the fact that there is already war, is to inflict a military defeat on Russia and render it incapable of pursuing its, its aggression any further. And, and, and I think that's what we should be helping Ukrainians to do. I mean, that's the way towards peace. Uh, there is, you know, like there is no negotiation with a regime that is seeking the destruction of your country, which is what, you know, those are the stated aims of the so-called special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. So until, you know, those ambitions change, there is very little that the Ukrainians can be sort of reasonably be bargaining over with 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 with, 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 with the Russians. Uh, I mean, I, I would just uh, say double ditto to what uh, um, to Dalibor said. You know, you can see this as sort of the slow motion collapse of the last nineteenth century European empire. Uh, even the French gave up their empire. It was an ugly, you know, an ugly period, and I expect that the collapse of the Russian Empire will be pretty blood, it already is very blood-soaked. The no negotiations for peace would come after the defeat of the empire. Empires needed to be defeated before you can reach peace with them, and certainly Russia's behavior during Putin's reign. Nor is there a particular reason to think that a successor to Putin would be necessarily an improvement by a liberal standard, small l, liberal standard. So, yeah, I agree with Dalibor that at this point there is no distinction between the defeat of Russia on the battlefield, uh, and I'll, I'll say it, a change of regime in Moscow in, in its fundamentals, and, uh, and peace not only in Eastern Europe, but 
in places where the Russians make themselves, you know, problematic, such as in Syria uh, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, we have a lot of data on Russian behavior over the recent centuries, and been relatively few happy moments. On that note, thank you for listening. This to is what we do front. on the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front is a place that, it, you know, sometimes it, the sun is shining on the fields of Ukraine, but a lot of times uh, we end on uh, a fairly uh, down note. But you should definitely uh, subscribe, rate, rate and review. review. You can also uh, sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Spotify or using wherever the link, which we'll include in the show notes. <laughs> That's right.